shakalaka. <laughs> Cooper, we have a little bit of a confession to make to the listeners. And that is that we are not, we're not audio technicians. We're not experts. And we figured something out. We, we figured out that we have been recording technically on one microphone yeah, the past Yeah, and that's why I've sounded like I've been 30 miles away from the recording site. And underwater. Yes, <laughs> and, and we, we are this foolish, folks. We've had two microphones plugged in to the same computer. And apparently when you do that, only, the computer only picks it up as one. It and just so doesn't work. Because of that, we uh, unfortunately, I've sounded horrendous. But... Today, you sound great. Today's the day. Today's the day. Today's we are your day. using two laptops. Yeah. Because we're rich. Wait, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know if you guys know this. We're a multi-million dollar podcast. <laughs> we are. As soon as we get some sponsorships. All we need is to start making a couple million and we'll be a multi-million dollar co- uh, easily. podcast. People do it easily. But Zach, that's, I didn't want to dwell on our, right, 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 on right. our mishap. We, we, we just want to apologize and move on. Cooper, yeah. what's our topic? Potatoes. And Spuds, I as some call yeah, them. Yeah, I wanted to make sure to emphasize the T's on potatoes. Potatoes. <laughs> yeah, I usually would probably say it with a D like potatoes. <laughs> I don't know what to say like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But specifically the fried version. Everyone's favorite part. We have to just thank the French for this. I mean, I mean they are good people We for know this. it didn't come from France. Yeah. But I don't know why. That they, I mean, they can have the credit with the name. I'll give it to anybody. Yeah. They're delicious. They're, they're delicioso. But there's, they're... It evolved into so many different types of fries. Yeah, it did. There's, I mean, regular potato French fries. Mm -hmm. Your classic, I mean, Whataburger, McDonald's. That would be my top. Yeah. (laughs) We've already been to the top, Whataburger. I mean, that's the best. (laughs) Dude, quick side note, Whataburger. I was sitting inside waiting for my order. We all know I'm going to have to wait an ungodly amount of time to get my food. (laughs) Yeah. This time was my fault because I was on my phone. But I'm like, what am I just going to sit there? I, I... you have to know that I want my food. Right. If I'm sitting there at a table because the like to go area is full, seek me out, please. <laughs> Come find me. Because I was waiting for 20 minutes and I walk up and I'm like, hey, I'm not mad. I'm just so hungry. Just be better. <laughs> and they're like, oh, are you number three? We actually called your order, but we threw it away because it got cold. I'm like, yeah. No, they threw it away? Because it had been out that long, apparently. Because oh. I was like, it had been 15 minutes and I was like, ah, Whataburger's crazy. <laughs> like, I've waited that long in the drive-thru. Right, right, right. So, not uncommon. But then 20 minutes and I was like, I've had enough. Jeez. Put my foot down. But they gave me the, they upgraded my fries to a large for free. Ooh. And it was the best fry I have had. When they're hot and hot nice and, and salty. Soaked and salt. Ooh. Delectable. Here's Very the thing. good. You'd think we're sponsored because everyone who's in their car is literally EU turning to, to Whataburger <laughs> right now because they want those fries, but we're right. not. But and we are here to make an argument of what is the greatest fry in all of the land. Yes. Specifically the land of America. Yes. Or the great state of Texas. The yes. Republic. Yeah. As some would call it. Yeah. I'm saying Whataburger. And I have a little bit of a hot take. Oh, no. And I know this place is normally known for having having the meats. No, no, but, you are not going to go but there. No, they do no, have an no. insane curly fry. Literally and that is already Arby's. Know. No, Arby's. No, they have the meats. No, they don't. And here's all they I'm don't have. Any, is, I haven't been in an Arby's since the third grade. Yeah. So here's the thing. I haven't had an Arby's fry in a long time. You're kidding me. And that's going to be your top because, fry. Because listen, just Cooper, listen. This is blasphemy. What is what, what you see? What happened was <laughs> uh, every day after every Sunday after church, my family and the O'Neill family would leave. Shout out O'Neill's <laughs> Hebrew Community Church. What do you say? Shout out what? O'Neill's. Shout out to the O'Neill's. Uh, one 
we would all go. They had like kids that were a little bit younger, kind of like staggered ages. Yeah. For my brother and I, shout out Kate McCullough, best brother I've ever had. <laughs> Literally love him. He actually just got back from Dubai. So wow. I haven't heard about the trip yet, but it was, I think, amazing. And I guarantee you the first thing that he did not do when he got back was go get Arby's. <laughs> That's true. However, <laughs> we would, there was a spot. It was on the way back from church. We'd go to Arby's and I would eat enough bites of my roast beef sandwich so that I could have what I came there for, a.k.a. mozzarella sticks, curly fries, and to top it all off the Jumoka shake. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I no. loathed, I loathed the, the roast beef sandwich because they've got fake meats. That is some nasty old meats. All they have is the meats, though, Zach. Oh, so, so there's so many different variations of fries. Uh, okay, but yeah, I do love Arby's fries. That's kind of a meme, but also true. Other fries that I think are putrid, butt fries from Chick Fil A. I don't mind Chick Fil A. <laughs> I think the waffle fry in itself is a horrible invention and it's yeah. a Bad, How bad, do you bad expect fry? me to dip a waffle fry into the tiny Chick Fil A sauce? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't dip my fries, so that I don't know. You're not a, a fry dipper. I'm not a fry dipper, but I think Chick Fil A's fries are good. But any other waffle fry, it was in the freezer section of Walmart, right? And that's what you're eating. Well, and every once in a while, you're just gonna get half a potato in your in your waffle. Exactly, fries. It's, so just it's just not butt worth cheek it. Fry, and yeah. you're just like. <laughs> That doesn't. I hate those. So when you talk about Arby's, are you talking about the curly sweet potato fries? No, no, no. There's not. They're not sweet potatoes. They're they're, they're just orange. They're just dyed in orange. Cooper, you actually, are so mistaken. They actually spray tan. They actually spray tan no. their fries. Oh, they spray tan the potatoes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They spray tan the potatoes. And then after they've come back from their trip to the Bahamas, because that's why they tan. They spray right, tan. Right, and they right, go to the Bahamas. Right, yeah. They come back, and then you eat them, and it's so good. No. Yeah, I, fair. Like I, I don't expect. I'm not trying to win any arguments here. I'm just saying they have a fond memory, and I think that was the age where I was developing my taste buds. Yeah, here's here's another hot take that I have. Hit me. I got COVID in January. My wife Yikes. and I did. She I, had some fun. Fun fact: I've never had COVID nineteen. That's crazy. Thank you. Congrats, Lord. I'm Congrats. blessed. <laughs> anyway, so we're we're quarantined. We're getting a little cooped up. So we DoorDash. Not to be confused with me, Coop. Right. We're right. not with Coop. Right. We were just Although I did actually, that was the, the ice age. During the ice age, I had yeah. to sleep over spend the night. Yeah, not while we had COVID. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we DoorDash. My wife DoorDashes a bunch of fries from a, def- a bunch of different oh, places. Oh, wow. So you're an experienced. Yeah. yeah. And so she, she blindfolds me. And we do a taste test yeah. of these different fries. We had Whataburger, Sonic, um, Wendy's. And, in, and, and just classic dude perfect fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few others that are not not memorable. even worth. They're not memorable. Not even worth giving the air time <laughs> so to. So it is hilarious because my blindfolded response to this question is different than my unblindfolded. And I think mm. there's a little bit of bias. Uh-oh. Whataburger is my favorite fry by far. It's my favorite food. I absolutely love it. Yep. But when we were doing the blind taste test, yeah. my favorite fry was Sonic. I love Sonic. They're crispy. The thing is, I never had Sonic's fries before because I always got tater tots. Yeah. I, I, I haven't got them since. Sonic's fries are the most <laughs> underrated fry of all time because they just, they're just they they're fried a little bit longer than most fries. You're never going to get a mushy fry. They're always just a nice little, like a little pop. A, little <laughs> a nice little what? <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that on the mic. Now that I have my own mic. Maybe yeah, can, before, maybe. But I clenched my teeth like. The the saddest part of that blind taste test was whenever I tasted the Whataburger fry blindfolded, the words that came out of my mouth next were, that's a new taste. 
I've never had that fry before. <laughs> Welcome to the Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. And I am your co-host, only set up and supported by our host, Zach Funderburg. And I'm still baffled by your hot take about Arby. Yeah, and I just sometimes I don't usually do that intro, guys. But sometimes it's just he says that he says the ender moment. I we say have to the zinger. Yeah, you say the zinger. Normally, you set me up pretty well, and you're giving me those eyes. I give like, you the hey, zinger let's send eyes, it but over. I was like, I think that's our zinger right there. <laughs> so you know, yeah, take it or leave it. Leave a little five star review. Yes, that way, say five stars, so that way we know that it was specifically for it this. Was a zinger. Cooper, issue. speaking of a zinger. Zach, light on me easy, man. <laughs> this is a zinger of an episode okay. we have this week. You know, as you know, yesterday was the Fourth of July. Fourth of July. The Fourth of July. As Cletus Storm Drain. <laughs> as Cletus would say, it was the Fourth of July, right. and he also probably eats uh, potatoes. Yeah, with the he D. does. And actually, it's his birthday. Cletus Storm Drain's it birthday is, is yeah, the Fourth of July. It he is. does. It. He's not a real person. <laughs> but if you go to my Instagram, yeah, at but, Cooper A L L A N eight plug, you can look up. I think it's 2019 and 2020, or 2018, 2019. I don't know. Well, there's some highlights from Cletus Stormgren on there. He's a good man who loves this country. And he another man it. that loves this country is Dr. Brent Taylor. He's a professor at DBU of he History, is. but he's also a pastor at First Baptist Church of the Fields in Carrollton, Texas. He's a man who can do, he can do it all. All. Gosh. I got the, the opportunity to go on a trip to Virginia with him. We got to go to a lot of historical places. We went to Mount Vernon, which was George Washington's home. We went to Monticello, yeah, which was Thomas Jefferson's home. You and him? Yeah, just me and him. No, it was it was with DBU. Oh, it was for yeah, a grad yeah, class. I learned a ton. But I absolutely love sitting under his teaching because, one, he's hilarious. He's extremely insightful. He's brilliant. And he combines the gospel with history in, unlike I've ever seen before. And it's unbelievable. He's also written two books, one called Founding Leadership and the other called President leadership. Yeah. I've read presidential and I'm in the middle of founding right now. And yeah. they're both and excellent. They're just, books. they're just reading your mail. You just love excellent, them. excellent books. I'd highly recommend any of you to go get them. But today I wanted to talk about the founding. There's a lot of debate and talk about how we should view these great men. But in all reality, it boils down to these men had flaws because they were humans, but they did really great things yeah. just like you and I. And so I wanted to learn about them and how we can healthily view the founding, view that time period in right. the world of turmoil we're in today. So it was very insightful. And I really want you to walk away from this being informed by where this country came from, what you can do to further advance it, further the gospel while you're doing it, and yeah. also just love the country and be grateful for the opportunity. All the to men that have gone before us. All of the men who have gone before us, we can learn from them, right, exactly. their, from successes their successes and their, their mistakes. mistakes. Goodness and gracious. we can be grateful for the sacrifices that give us the freedom that we have today. Right. There's value in history, folks. So much. It's not just a boring textbook. Man, Those who people. do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Oh, and I gosh. pray we do not repeat some of the the things of our past, but I also pray that we do repeat some of them. And yeah, so there's so some, much we can learn. We had some, America, we had some good moments. We had some very bad moments. Of course. But hey, we're on the up and up, hopefully. Because on this side of heaven, nothing will be perfect. No oh, man, man, no country, no society will be perfect. That but we can strive. Longing. We can strive towards a more perfect union every day, like the great document says. Mm. But without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the historian himself. And pastor. And pastor, father, husband. Gosh. Jack of all trades. Jack o' lantern. I mean, good no. man. Has he? He's probably made a jack o' lantern. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Here he is, Coop. Dr. Brent Taylor.
Well, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. I got the uh, opportunity, the esteemed opportunity to go on a Virginia trip with you a few months ago. And it was enlightening. It was life-changing. I learned so much. So I wanted to kind of share some of that with uh, our listeners here. Kind of introduce yourself. Who are you? How do you get to where you are today? Well, I am honored to be on the show. Thanks for um, letting me be a part of this podcast. I uh, have been a pastor for the past 22 years at the same church. So the church is called First Baptist Church at the Fields. It's formerly First Baptist Carrollton here in Texas. And uh, so I've been serving in that capacity. I also help to uh, lead a nonprofit organization that works with ministry students, and it's called Unlimited Partnerships. And then I'm also involved at Dallas Baptist University, where I get the joy of teaching U.S. history as an adjunct professor and so I always joke that that's my version of playing golf. That's what I do for fun is I get to uh, be a part of that. So that's what I like to do. Right. So you, you're, the fun side is the historian. So you've written some books, you've, uh, you've taught, that's what you studied in college, if I'm not mistaken, was history. So you're kind of a historian, but a pastor by trade. And there's something to say there about faithfulness and longevity in one place. Uh, I mean, 22 years of service is, is quite remarkable. So thank you for everything you're doing. One for the university and two for your local community where you are in Carrollton. But kind of talk about the books. You've written two books, Founding Leadership and Presidential Leadership. What was your inspiration on writing those two and kind of what was your process in, in doing that? Well, Founding Leadership was the first book that I wrote, and uh, the subtitles, Lessons on Business and Personal Leadership from the Men Who Brought You the American Revolution. And I love the American Revolution. I love studying that. That's kind of the area of history that I'm uh, enamored with that. Um, I, I love uh, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington are two people that I hold in high regard. And uh, so... Uh, I just always had an interest in these areas, but I just, as I looked at the founding fathers, I just saw things about their life that I thought were great examples of what a leader looks like, mm -hmm. kind of who a leader is. And uh, founding leadership describes a little bit about uh, different leaders and kind of pulls one main leadership characteristic out of their life. There are several in all of their lives, but it pulls out one main leadership characteristic. The second book is Presidential Leadership, and in that book, I focus on not all the presidents. I focus on a, a group of them. I pair them together. I put uh, two presidents per chapter, and they're presidents that are not normally connected together, people who uh, you don't normally think of yeah. uh, in, the same, uh, in the same frame of mind, but I put them in the same uh, chapter to draw out what a leader does. And so the first book is more of who a leader is. The second book is more of what a leader does. And uh, both books are designed to be uh, helpful for people who want to be better leaders. Mm. And at the same time, they're not books that trash anybody. I talk about all the modern presidents, for example, uh, going back all the way to Jimmy Carter. They're, uh, they're all in the book, and I don't try to bash any one of them. Because if you want to find a book that bashes the presidents, there's plenty of those. That it's not are, hard to find. Yeah, not hard to find. But um, I try to find the positive things that we can draw out. And uh, I'll let the rest of the world look for all the negative stuff to find. But designed to make people know who they are and figure out how they were designed to lead in today's culture. 
since yesterday was the 4th of July, we're going to be focusing on the, the founding leadership book. But I, before we go there, I want to just kind of whet the people's appetite for presidential leadership. So they'll go buy it and read it because I finished it a few months ago while we were on the trip and I loved it. But from that book, do you have a favorite pairing of presidents that you put together that's kind of unlikely that people wouldn't really expect that you're like, wow, that I was able to pull more out of that than I thought? Well, there uh Several of the pairings right. are very odd. People normally put together, uh, but probably the one that was my favorite is uh, naturally the chapter on Abraham Lincoln, and he gets paired with Richard Nixon. <laughs> and uh, Lincoln and Nixon are not normally in the same breath. You don't find the two of them on their own version of Mount Rushmore. But uh, you know, you don't see them together. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of lessons for people out of their lives. Abraham Lincoln was one who obviously called us to the better, better angels of our nature and uh, tried to bring the country together. And I build uh, that chapter is really about how leaders forgive. They forgive people. Nixon just he had trouble with that. He just had trouble with being able to forgive people and to move forward. He's a guy that held a grudge. And there's a lot of people that wrestle with that. They struggle with that. Lincoln, on the other hand, would write a letter to somebody he was angry with, and then he would stick it in a desk drawer that he had of letters that were written but never mailed. Mm. And so He's those emotions that are normal, but a lot of times people tend to either bottle them up, try to suppress them, or they just lash out. And one way or the other, it comes out and uh, people, uh, it either comes out in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. And I think Lincoln models a healthy way to process uh, when you've been hurt and when you've been wronged. And um, Nixon, on the other hand, not not as much so. And right. so that's the pairing that I really, uh, I really have a tendency to be drawn toward. And obviously, they lived in, in two different times. They were presidents 100 years apart. And yet, uh, both had tremendous potential, both became presidents. So obviously, they reached that potential. But they didn't reach the full potential. And that issue of there's a word that's one of my favorite words, and that's magnanimity. Mm. And Lincoln just was magnanimous yeah. as a leader. And so often Nixon found himself being petty. And the difference between those two will make a big difference in how a person lives their life. It's a fascinating book, and I'd encourage anyone listening to to go get it. But that's not the the focus of our conversation today. Our focus is on the founders because we're celebrating uh, this great country and and how far we've come from the founding. But in the book, Founding Leadership, you kind of talk through different men who are behind the founding lessons on business and personal leadership from the men who brought you the American Revolution. So I kind of want to talk through five of these men that you you talk about in their own subsequent chapters and and talk a little bit about each of them so you can encourage encourage the listeners to go study them more because that's really what this podcast is about is studying and learning from the successes and mistakes of the men and women who have walked before us and how we can either replicate that or not fall into the same pitfalls that they did. So I want to talk about these men because there's so many lessons you can learn from them. And, and we'll just start by the old guy, the revolution, kind of the patriarch of that time, the Benjamin Franklin, uh, the chapter in, in this, in your book is first know thyself. Uh, what, what can we learn from Benjamin Franklin? Benjamin Franklin has so much to teach. I mean, we could spend all day just talking about him because he was such a, a remarkable human being. I mean, just all of his inventions, all that he did in the world of science, 
would would uh, just one of his inventions would make him memorable. But to have so many inventions and you know mapping the Gulf Stream and flippers that we use and I mean, all sorts of things that he was responsible for. But his his leadership, the characteristic that I draw out is that idea of knowing yourself as a leader. A leader has to know who they are. Boy, Franklin understood who he was and he understood who other people were. He had what we call today emotional intelligence. He understood how people process, how people think, how people behave and the best way to interact with them. And good leaders not only are students of themselves, but they're students of other people. And so Franklin understood how to relate to others and how to uh, figure out who his identity was. Now that didn't just come automatically. It was a process for him. He, um, he has an experience when he is in London where he's called before uh, the Privy Council to explain the actions of the colonies. And he's accused of being a traitor and he's slandered and humiliated. Mm-hmm. And uh, the British um, officer that was, um, uh, was, was really berating him, just raked him over the coals. And Franklin had to stand there and take it. Mm-hmm. And the comment was made by, I think it was H.W. Brands that made the comment that he uh, that he walked in a Briton and walked out an American. Mm. That was a turning point in his life. It became part of his identity. And so Franklin is Franklin's remarkable, but he teaches us we've got to know who we are. Mm. Yeah, he's a fascinating. Have you read the, the autobiography that he wrote? Yes. It is on my reading list for this night. I would love to read it. But is that a book you'd recommend on him? So that's an interesting book. The biography, uh, I mean, his autobiography, obviously he's telling it from his perspective. It's incomplete. It tells a portion mm-hmm. of his life. There are some things that you kind of wonder about as you, <laughs> yeah. but um, I think Walter Isaacson's book on Franklin is fantastic. Uh, there, there, I mean, there's, a, there are quite a, quite a few people who have tackled, uh, tackled him, but Isaacson's probably the most recent that, um, uh, would is, is accessible to the average reader. Mm. Franklin is just a fascinating guy. Number two is Thomas Jefferson. I'll never forget on this Virginia trip, sitting behind Monticello in Virginia, listening to the, the lecture that you gave on Thomas Jefferson as a man of vision. He had a vision for this country. It's I mean, it's the declaration of independence and, and what came after, but then also just the vision of Monticello. What can we learn from the man of vision, Thomas Jefferson? Well, Thomas Jefferson is a study in contrast and, right. He, um, he's like all of us in that regard, that there are contrasts about him. But Thomas Jefferson was incredibly skilled. He had incredible talent of, as a writer. Obviously, one of, the, um, one of the greatest minds of the founding generation. And here he is, this young man. And I think that's something that's important. We, we forget with the founding fathers. We think of them all as being these uh, you know, ancient people, like they're senior adults because of right. the pain that we see. But they were uh-huh. young. Thomas Jefferson, Declaration of Independence is 33. So uh, he would be classified as a millennial today. Right. And uh, uh, but he was he was a man that could see ahead. He was a man of vision. He read the past very, very well read in the uh, not only the uh, the writings of the uh, of the philosophers, you know, the, the Plato's and the Aristotle's. But he he read Locke and Hume and Rousseau. He read them and was able to bring their ideas together to be able to help cast a vision for the future. The Declaration of Independence is an example of that, of course. And we yeah. 
Well, we've been celebrating that all weekend. Uh, but you also have things like the Louisiana Purchase. Louisiana Purchase, where he buys this incredible amount of territory. Probably most people think that he bought more territory than any other president. Not true. That was James K. Polk. Hmm. But or Polk acquired more territory. I won't say bought, yeah. but acquired more territory. But but uh, that vision of hey, we've got to continue to expand and and uh, grow the country. So. Uh, vision is something that's very important for a leader, and vision is very difficult. Vision is talked about all the time when you talk about leadership, but having vision, communicating vision, thinking everybody sees what you see is uh, is very difficult. So you got to be able to look to the past. you got to be able to look at what's going on around you. you got to be able to look at the future. I call it hindsight, sight, and foresight, the past, the present, and future. And then you've got to have insight to synthesize all of those together, to cast the vision for your organization, for your club, for your, you know, your business, your church, whatever it may be. You've got to have a vision of where you're going. Mm. He's also a fascinating character, but one of my favorite quotes about him was from John F. Kennedy when he was talking about his cabinet. He said, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Jefferson dined alone. Just like a testament to his brilliance, how smart he was. And I think you said something interesting in there is being able to have that hindsight to learn from the past, be well read on it, but then synthesize it together to use it towards the future. How can leaders Leaders use the past to inform where they want to go in the future. Well, if you don't know where you've been, then you right. can't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And that's not just true in your personal life. But I, I tell my I tell my students at Dallas Baptist that uh, in the history class that I teach that you're taking a history class, you're getting paid for it. You know, you're paying for a history class, and you get credit for a history class. But I teach a leadership class. We use history as the lens to understand leadership. And I said, I said, you cannot tackle the problems that are in our country today. And you cannot make a difference and change the future if you don't know the the foundation of them, if you don't know the history, the past, and leaders have got to be students of the past. You know, one of the things I've discovered over the years of speaking on my book and talking to um, different organizations, different leaders, oftentimes the people that I find who are in the top levels of leadership and organizations they are oftentimes lovers of history. Mm. Now, not all the case, not 100%, but most of the time, the leaders in organizations are people who love history because mm. they know they've got to understand that past to be able to go forward. There, you, you think about it from the Bible. A lot of times people talk about the New Testament. You cannot understand and appreciate the New Testament without understanding and appreciating, appreciating the Old Testament. Mm. They, are, they are inseparably linked. You can't understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament, you know, why Jesus came. And so I I really think it's so important for leaders when we see that in the founding generation, they were scholars of the past. You've got to understand where you have come from, where your organization has come from, where your country has come from, where your family has come from. Mm. If you're going to understand who you are and where you're going, where you're going to lead in the future. I think it's so important. And I think it's something that my generation is not appreciating as much and taking the approach that you look 
you mentioned at the beginning, taking the positive look at the, at history in the past, I feel like my, my generation is just looking at everything bad and, and using that against what we're doing now. But we, we can talk that in a little bit. We've got some more founders to get through. Next up is George Washington, the first president, the man, like really the face, not even the face the, when you think of the revolution, you think of George Washington and the cover of the book is him crossing. Is it the Delaware or the Potomac? What's he crossing? Oh. Delaware. That's what I thought. Um, but this is this chapter is called The Art of Influence. He's a man that when people look to, they wanted to lead. I'm, I'm reading right now His Excellency, the, the biography on him. And one of the lines at the beginning was talking about all of the other founders talents, how smart Alexander Hamilton was, how well read Jefferson was, just how brilliant all of them were. But the not not as well educated man, George Washington, was the one they all looked to as the leader. Why was that? Why was his influence so great? Well, the book you're referencing there by Joseph Ellis, I think he answers that question very clearly, and that is character. It mm. was the character of George Washington that made him the gold standard. In fact, in my book on presidents, he's in that book. You can't have a book on presidents without having George Washington. Right. And he's not paired with anybody. He's not paired with anybody because he's the first one. He's the he's the uh, he's yeah. the gold standard as I as I call him in that book. But George Washington, I think, is such an an excellent example of different types of leadership and how the importance of both types. Sometimes there's really kind of two types that I talk about, command and control and influence. Mm -hmm. And command and control are, you know, those people that are, that are just on people's backs, riding them, just commanding them, controlling them. And then you have people that are influence leaders and influence leaders are the types of folks who can look at you and just, just a disappointing look just, just makes you crater on the inside because right. of their you know, that's influence. Washington had both of those. Mm. When he was leading in battle, he made it very clear. If I see you running the wrong direction, as in you're running away from the fight, I will shoot you. I mean, he was, he was very clear about that. Yeah. On the other hand, he had the ability to give an icy stare to people that could just shut them down, could, could cause them to back away. He had the ability to influence uh, the people who were not only uh, his his friends and the people who reported to him, but his influence even spills over into the opposition, of course, fighting against England at that time. And uh, even some like General Howe, that was really one of his main officers that he was doing doing battle against. Uh, General Howe made comments on the character of Washington. Now, Howe would have strung him up in a heartbeat. There's no question about that. But he still recognized that, th that there was something different. This man was head and shoulders above the rest. He was literally in terms of his height because he, right. he was a tall man. He was tall in the saddle. But he was also somebody who, who led by example. And I think people looked to him and his influence was more than just, here's an Posing, dominating figure. I think his influence was more about driven by his character. Here's somebody who believes in the cause, believes in the revolution, and uh, had the ability to shame people. There's a whole story about this conspiracy by some of his uh, some of his men to overthrow the Continental Congress, and he just goes in and just melts the room. He says some things, pulls out his glasses, just right. melts the room in a moment. And I think that that is 
influence on display in, in a way that uh, is a reminder to all of us as a leaders. You know, as a parent, my number one leadership responsibility are to my three children. Uh, they're grown now, but I still have, you know, try to have influence in their life. But there's a time when they were growing up, it was all about command and control. Yeah. I mean, we... <laughs> We, we didn't want to have a revolution in the house with a bunch, you know, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, you know, right. so there's command and control, but as they grow older, it's about influence. Mm. And I really think that's true in a leadership. There, there's a time that you have to be a command and control leader, but the responsibility of good leaders is to be able to influence the next generation. It's so important. And so is character that I think that's an overlooked trait. A lot of times that we know what it is. We were taught it in grade school, but character is something that you never graduate from. It only grows. And, and that's what separates the good leaders from the great leaders. And you said something, we were sitting at the, uh, I believe we were sitting on the Lincoln Memorial in DC and you were talking, it was either you or Dr. Wright talking about how, when you look at the Washington monument, it's faceless. One of the only faceless monuments. Why is that? Kind of talk about that incarnational leadership that you talk about in uh, presidential leadership. So Washington, you know, the Washington Monument built in his honor. And uh, uh, I think in, in so many ways, the idea of it not having a face on it, you know, it's not it's not like the Lincoln Memorial or the FDR or the Martin Luther King. I mean, it's it is a monument that that stands high and it stands tall. And I think in many ways it represents the fact that that. Uh, Washington embodied the revolution. It's not, it's not just about the man, although the man is a big part of it, but he was bigger than that. Right. And uh, not just, you know, the fact they named the city after him, you, you have these things, but when you think of the revolution, when you think of the presidency, you think of George Washington. I mean, he was the, the, the leader. He was the one that, that was, he was savvy about things. I mean, he shows up at, uh, shows up at the uh, Continental Congress and he's wearing his uniform and they elect him to be the uh, the, the general in charge. You know, and I, I make a comment in the book. It's like if you're if you're going to lead a you know lead a group to go to Disney World and there's one person that's got Mickey Mouse ears on, well maybe that's the guy that ought to lead you know lead the group. Right. Well, he's in uniform. He embodied what he was about and what he believed. He carried himself that way, and I think leaders of organizations do that as well. I think as Christians, we should embody what it means to be a follower of Christ. I think that's what being a Christian is all about. Right. It's not about just the actions. It's about embodying who Christ is and what he, what he taught and what we're supposed to be doing. And so it's so important for leaders to embody their organization. But more than that, what do we embody the values that we hold dear? What's most important to us? We say to our kids when we're raising them, hey, Remember, when you leave and you go out, you're representing not just you, you're representing our family. Okay. So you're saying to your kid, hey, you embody the name, the honor, the character, the reputation of our family. And we're I'm telling you, go protect that. Mm -hmm. Washington understood that. And I think yeah. great leaders do as well. Yeah. I mean, just a great man to study and, and character and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful example of leadership. Next guy, John Adams, kind of a forgotten founding father at times, kind of the one without the monument, uh, but a brilliant man. And the the title of his chapter is Unshakable Convention or Conviction, Conviction, Conviction. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, he represented in court the the British officers from the Boston massacre. Is that correct? And, and he's from Boston. So tell that story. Kind of what can we learn from John Adams? Okay. So the Boston massacre takes place. And obviously that's 
the American title for it, the British called it the incident on King Street. Right. Uh, so for them, it wasn't as big a deal as, as uh, Paul Revere and others turned it into a Boston massacre. But John Adams was so deeply convicted that people needed to be represented fairly by the law that Adams um, somewhat reluctantly, but courageously, I think, takes on their case, defends them in court, defends the um, the commanding officer and the troops, and uh, they're acquitted. Two, are, two receive a light sentence, and by light sentence, they brand their hands. Oof. You don't consider that to be a light sentence, but back then it was. And this is not a popular decision, not a popular decision for him to defend them by other patriots, including his cousin, uh, Samuel Adams, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so, but his conviction was so strong that he needed to do this, that he represents a group of people that were obviously not well loved, but he felt like they needed to be defended. By the way, speaking of influence and how that carries on to generations, his son, John Quincy Adams, our sixth president. When he becomes after he's president, there is a case of a a slave ship, the Amistad, and uh, John Quincy Adams, who's serving in the House of Representatives because he he lives to serve. uh, He defends the slaves in that case and gets them acquitted in the process as well. So you see a legacy of people who are willing to, um, you know, to to live by their convictions. And John Adams, I love John Adams. He's one of my favorite founding fathers. He was a he was a gadfly. He was annoying. He was all of those things. But man, he he believed so strongly. And I think, you know, he says John Adams made the statement. He said that if it wasn't for the pen of Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, then the sword of George Washington would have been raised in vain. Mm-hmm. But I believe that if it wasn't for John Adams, I mean, John Adams was an early adopter on the whole idea of independence and liberty, and he was whispering that before others were. I believe that if it wasn't for his convictions and the way that he handled things, I believe we wouldn't have the revolution. I'm not sure he was the greatest president ever. Right. For sure, right? But he, uh, as a um, as a leader during that that time, during this whole time we're celebrating here around July Fourth, um, he he was unmatched. I think. Well, why is he so forgotten? Why didn't he have a monument? Does does he deserve an, a monument in D.C. in your in your opinion? Absolutely, he deserves a monument in D.C. Yeah. I was on a radio program with uh, Janine Turner, and she was talking about how she wants to raise money uh, for that. And I support her in that. I just don't have the money for that. You know, those <laughs> monuments are expensive. But right. uh, but yes, absolutely, he should have a monument because yeah. he is essential to the cause. And sometimes we build monuments to uh, uh, to to causes and to things that maybe uh, will not outlive, will not live as long as uh, the legacy of John Adams. Yeah, hey, just a fascinating guy. There's a great HBO series called John Adams and uh, David McCullough wrote a great book on him. That is a rather thick book, but there's a lot to talk about and a lot to learn from from John Adams. One that is kind of was forgotten, but then was kind of resurrected by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Alexander Hamilton. Most people have seen the the Broadway production or seen it on Netflix or I guess it was on Disney Plus. Uh, what can we learn from Alexander Hamilton? What, what's in his uh, chapter titles, Executing the Vision? How did he execute the vision? So uh, let me just uh, say this. I have to say this. So I, I was an early adopter on Hamilton. 
Hamilton and I bought tickets before it got hot. And I wish I'd bought 10 tickets because by the time I went and saw the show, it was hot. Saw the original cast. My kids made fun of me until they realized, oh, wait, this is cool. So uh, <laughs> I just have to throw that in there. Of course. Alexander Hamilton is uh, he is somebody. I mean, you talk about a brilliant mind. You talk about a um, pull yourself up from the, you know, by your bootstraps kind of person. It's, it's incredible. The thing that, that Hamilton had that is so important is his ability to execute. Mm. So he had the ability to take that vision and make that vision happen. You see that in the musical when he is even just an officer under George Washington during the revolution, he's the one that's writing out these orders, writing out, uh, writing letters. He was the one handling the correspondence as an aide de camp for Washington. But even more so when you get into that first cabinet and he's there leading the treasury, helping to develop our financial system. So much of it is still in place today, still being used today because of that incredible ability to have that vision. I think every great leader has to be able to execute on their own. You have to be able to get things done. Mm. But the more that your vision expands, the more your organization expands, the more that your breadth of, of reach expands. You got to have people on your team. Mm -hmm. Every great leader needs somebody to come alongside them to be a Hamilton. They need a right-hand man, as some would say. They need a right-hand man, so to speak, or a right-hand woman, if you really want to get it done. Uh, But you need that kind of person in your life. But we talk today a lot about mentoring and you see George Washington and his investment in Alexander Hamilton and the mentoring that happens there. But I would also say too, that Washington needed Hamilton, Mm. just like Hamilton needed Washington. Mentoring is not a one-way street. There is something that both parties need in all of that. And Washington needed Hamilton. Hamilton needed Washington. And so I think as leaders, we've got to figure out who am I investing in? Who is investing in me? The biblical example of that is, you know, who is my who is my Barnabas that walks beside me? Who's my Apostle Paul that mentors me? Who is my Timothy that I'm mentoring? Mm. Those kind of characteristics, those kind of people, those need to be in the life of a leader. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I think I'll ask the question that everyone listening is wondering from a historical perspective, how accurate is the musical? Well, there are parts of it that are accurate and parts of it that are not accurate. So okay. uh, it's 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 surprising. It's remarkable how accurate many of the things are in there. Now, yeah. some people get credit. Madison gets credit for things that other people did, but that's because they're using poetic license to combine people together. But I will say this. Uh, more people have learned history from uh, Hamilton, as they've memorized lines and things like that, than ever would have happened had that uh, had that musical not taken place. So I commend the musical. I know there's yeah. it's got problems and there's there's things about it that are faulty, but hey, I think it's pretty good. As does everyone else have problems, but I think uh, Miranda got it the inspiration from the Ron Chernow book uh, about Alexander Hamilton. So just an amazing, a fascinating man. Also, do you think he would have been president if he wasn't uh, killed by Aaron Burr? Well, you know, there are some people that, that that say that other people say, well, no, he was born in Nevis, so he wouldn't be eligible to be president. <clears throat> I, I don't know. That's yeah. an interesting it's an interesting thing. I, I do think we take for granted when you have the vice president, uh, you know, killing the former 
Secretary of the Treasury in a duel. I mean, we got problems, but they're not new. So uh, it's pretty remarkable when you when you think about all of that. And I didn't get into I didn't get into Aaron Burr, but he is a fascinating individual as well and not nearly as likable as he is on Broadway. That man tried to like buy up half the country to the West and like start his own, didn't he? He, well, that's unreal. That's it's yes, it's a complicated story, and he's accused of, of trying to commit treason in the process. There, what a lot of people don't realize is that that uh, they know the lyric in the song. My my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that Jonathan Edwards was his grandfather. Really? So uh, here you have Jonathan Edwards, the great yeah. revivalist preacher. And, uh, his, uh, grandson is Aaron Burr, who spent a lot of time growing up in his home. So it was also a sinner in the hands of an angry God. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, speaking of problems, all of these men, as we know, had problems. They had their own personal sins, the things that were all, uh, wrong with them just as we do, but they also did such amazing things based off conviction, based off the fight against tyranny, starting a new government, working so hard, uh, to, to make things right. How do we study these men? You talked about the contrast of Thomas Jefferson. He had so many slaves. He, he writes that all men are created equal. There's, there's a lot of contradictions. From today's perspective, this is a hot topic. How do we study history? What is your advice to young people now in studying history? How do we do it well? How do we do it with a healthy perspective that these men were sinners, but they did great things? How can we mend that? You know, it's one of the very interesting things to me, and this is where history and being a pastor come together in my life. Mm. And that is, <clears throat> I have a lot of people, I have people, I have students, I have friends, whatever, they ask me those kind of questions. You know, hey, we've got, we've got these people and they were slave owners, you know, these issues that are very serious issues. What's interesting to me is that I don't have anybody that ever comes to me and says, Pastor, how are we supposed to study King David? How are we supposed to study Moses? How are we supposed to study the Apostle Paul? Because they have these things in their life. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes a letter that, you know, people occasionally read uh, when they get to the little book of Philemon, but it's about a runaway slave. You You just don't see people, you don't hear people asking those same questions. Fascinating. And I think what we have to do is I, I just take the same mindset. Uh, King David was a flawed individual. I mean, right. the Bible lays it all out there. I mean, it 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 you know uh, you know airs out his dirty laundry there in Second Samuel chapter eleven and in his adultery with Bathsheba. We see that, and yet he's also called a man man after God's own heart. And there are things about his life that I admire and I preach on, and I I see in in, in King David's life. Well, there are things in the founding fathers' lives that I look at that make me sick. Mm. I mean, they're sinful. There's no other way to look at it. There's no other way to describe it. I wish that they had handled some things differently than they do, but I can't go back and change history. So I can look at those things and recognize, okay, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, they are flawed individuals. So I'm going to look at those things and try to learn lessons as to how I can improve areas of my life and not fall into some things that they did. But I'm also going to look at good things that are in their life and seek to emulate those in how I live my life. One of my heroes is my dad, Mm -hmm. but my dad is a flawed individual. And I know many of his flaws, 
but I still hold him up and I still emulate things from his life. There's some reason that we've looked at certain people and said, well, we can, we have to throw them out. Or as we say today, we have to cancel them. I just think that's a huge mistake. I think you can find good and bad. And I'll tell you where you can find good and bad very quickly. Look in the mirror, Mm, look in your own life. You know, and I see good things in my life that I want my kids to emulate. And I see things in my life that I think, oh, man, I hope my kids never do that. I just think that's that's part of humanity. And the only one that we hold up as being perfect is the Lord Jesus Christ and try to be like him as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But in this debate in our culture, yes, we acknowledge there are things that they did wrong. But yes, we also acknowledge that there are good things as well that we can learn and take away. Hmm. I, that is the best answer that I've heard on that question. Thank you uh, so much for that. And I think we need to move off that before you convict us anymore and tell us <laughs> to look in the mirror again. Uh, but I think another thing that my generation lacks is gratitude, that there's that look from the past and even from our parents, we're, we're just not grateful for what has been given to us. There's a lot of talk about privilege, but there is a privilege to live in this country and to live with the freedoms that we have. So can you kind of give the case to the young people listening why they should be grateful for the country that they live in today? Well, instead of me making the case, I would just spend some time talking to people who have given their all to come to this country, to Mm -hmm. leave where they are. Uh, You know, as our church does a lot of work in places that I can't even name because of security reasons. And we work with people all the time that literally risk their lives or the lives of their family to come to a place to have the things that we have, to have the, the benefits we have. You know, I mean, we, we are so blessed as a country. I always joke every time my kid drops one of their phones, I'm like, hey, you know, that's a thousand dollars. I mean, every time you drop yeah. your phone, just remember, you know, you just dropped 800 bucks or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, we take for granted all the things that we have. Now, I will say this, because this is a podcast targeting the next generation, I will say that gratitude grows, tends to grow over time. Yeah. The older you get, the more that you realize how blessed you are, uh, because I think we are selfish people and 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 sometimes living more and seeing more of the world uh, with social media the way that it is and with our culture the way that it is. We have the death of experts. Everybody's an expert now. And so I'm an expert on everything, even though I've only lived 25 years or whatever it may be. Time does a lot of things to bring bring some reality to people's lives. And I do think, um, you know, I love America. I'm grateful for this country. I think this country is flawed and has problems, has mistakes. Yes. Mm. I'd rather live here than any other country in the world. I'd rather be in America than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the way that we have travel abilities and all that, if people don't like America, there are plenty of places that people can live. But at the same time, we should do all that we can to try to improve our country and make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, yelling on social media uh, doesn't do very much. I've never met anybody whose whose idea or mind has been changed because of that. But talking to each other, building relationships with people, getting to know people who don't look like you, sound like you, speak your language. These types of things are part of how we can improve relationships and make our country better in the process. Um, I don't I don't hold up America as perfect, just like I don't hold myself up as perfect. But I do hold America up as a country that I love and I'm grateful to be part of it. 
Yeah. And if we look at the past and we are grateful for what we have been given, we can march forward uh, into the future onto the new frontier that awaits us with this gratitude and with hope and with, uh, with purpose. And, and one of the last chapters of this book, you talk about a bunch of other great men as Thomas Paine, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, and another chapter, but you're going to have to read the book to get that chapter. The next one is on Lewis and Clark, the, 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 the people that we study when we're little, the explorers, the great adventurers. And the, the title of their chapter is marching off the map. They had the courage to go out into the unknown and to create the map. So we know what's out there. They had no idea what was there. We don't know what tomorrow brings. What are you, what do you say to the next generation of leaders who will take the torch, who will march forward, who will march off the map and, and into the future? What is your message to them in regard to learning from Lewis and Clark, of course? Well, Lewis and Clark are, they're fascinating people. They are not founding fathers. Yeah, of course. But I just kind of, I just kind of operated off the fact that most people thought, well, they lived a long time ago. They might as well be founding fathers. So, yeah. uh, yes. but I mean, they were adventurers. They, they were willing to go into uncharted territory by, uh, by their standards. Obviously there are people living there that, that right. uh, native American tribes that were very familiar with the territory, but they had courage. And I think it takes great courage to be willing to be willing to lead and to lead in the future. And especially in this day and age today, we don't, we don't run the risk as much that they had. They had like, they were physically afraid of, you know, or facing great fear with uh, the elements, not sure what was going to happen, the tribes, all of those things that they were going to face out there. Today, we face a cancel culture. Today, we face people calling us names, all sorts of things like that. But we need great leaders who are willing to uh, to march off the map, so to speak, who are willing to go to, uh, to have that vision to see where we need to go, to have the faith, to follow uh, God's leadership and what that is, and really the the courage to do it, mm. uh, to be willing to say, okay, God, you're leading me and I'm going to go where you're leading me to go. So uh, Lewis and Clark are, are, are great, I think, examples of being a person of courage and leading into the future. And I will say this, we need the next generation to step in and lead. There's some vacuums in leadership. There's gaps that we need people to step in and lead and to lead well, mm-hmm. but you got to have courage to do that. And Lewis and Clark had it. In, in the book, in this chapter, you said, according to Amrose Redmoon, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. I think it's such a good reminder of what courage is. It's not just the ferocious lion that you see, but it's the courage to do what's right in the everyday mundane things. Uh, Dr. Taylor, what's your advice to your 20 year old self? If you were to go back and tell 20 year old Brent Taylor, something probably at the campus of Baylor, what would you tell that person? So uh, that's a great question. I love that question. And it's so easy for me to answer because it's advice that was given to me when I was at that time in my life. And I would say it again. The advice that was given to me was this. There will be plenty of trees to chop down once your axe is sharpened. Mm. I would say to my 20-year-old self, do everything I can to sharpen my axe, to study to read, to look back in history, to look at the world around me now, to understand what has happened so that I am better prepared to lead in the future, to speak in the future, to call others to the future. Uh, so often we're, we're, we want things quicker than what they, you know, what they used to come to people. And I understand people want a seat at the table and they want to be part of things. 
I appreciate that, understand that, love that. But take time to sharpen your ax. And when you do, there will be more trees to chop down than you could ever chop. Mm, That is such great advice that there will be plenty of trees to cut down once your ax is sharpened. And that's why we study the men and women who have gone before us, who have taught us these lessons that left this legacy for us to live in this country, that we may march forward with courage off the map into the unknown frontier of the future and cut down all the trees that are in in front of us, hopefully with a sharp ax. Dr. Taylor, thank you for sharpening that ax with us today. It was a wonderful conversation and I appreciate your time. It's fantastic to be with you, Zach. Thank you. 